What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. Today, my guest is a brother by the name of Austin Barrier, and he's a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations. And we have a very challenging conversation today talking about human trafficking and a lot of the things that are related to it, what it means and how we can recognize it and how we can see it on calls that we're on and how we can see it in our our own lives and the risk that we find ourselves in. It is a very interesting and uh, illuminating conversation and I hope you enjoy. So, uh, Austin, welcome. Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Um, I want to talk to you today about uh, a lot about your career and some of the work that you do, which is uh, pretty heavy stuff. When we start talking about human trafficking, you know, I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about the, you know how the heck you uh, survive that, frankly. And um, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about uh, who you are and how you ended up in this crazy place, anyway. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, I've had a pretty long career in uh, in law enforcement. Uh, like you, I was a, a member of uh, Uncle Sam's Big Green Gun Club back in the 90s. Yeah, I was, uh, let's talk about that for a second. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was, for me, it was an adventure. I um, had already been going to university for a couple of years, and I was at this point where I was like, you know what, I'm kind of bored with school. Let me go out and do something crazy. And I, I remember signing up and, you know, going calling a recruiter and joining the Marines, enlisting, uh, Back then, of course, this was the '90s, so you had to call your. I had to call my parents long distance from college. <laughs> and what year did you go in? I went in in '93, oh, 1993. Okay. I was I was getting ready to roll out of there by then. I left in uh, in '94. Okay, so we had a little bit of overlap. A yep. little bit. Yep. Little Carl, yeah, little Carl Mundy, I think a little uh, Al Gray. The, the yeah. Marine Corps was kind of the same at that point, yeah. Yeah, we were in between stuff, right? I mean, yeah. Desert Storm was winding down. You had all the uh, little hot spots and. You know the Balkans and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, but no, nothing big going on, right? Yeah, it was kind of a kind of at least for me, it was mostly a peacetime service. You you told me once before, but I don't remember what what did you do? So uh, <laughs> by MOS, I was a Blue Falcon. I was a military police officer, <laughs> but I was assigned to uh, HMX One, Marine One, which is the uh, white top helicopters that uh, transport the uh, president do executive support mission. Cool. I was there during the uh, Clinton administration, so. Our job as MPs, we were a security company. So, for example, you know, when you have the, the Marine security guards at the embassies, at the White House, you know, similar mission, but we traveled with, uh, then again, President Clinton and his staff with Marine One, worked extensively with the Secret Service. It was, it was a good, good job, exciting, right? I mean, for somebody who was 19, 20 years old, I think I hit 37 states and like 14 countries, and... And my, my experience was a little bit different than the average the average marine, right? I wasn't uh, eating MREs and mm, I imagine living in you know, rolling up in my whoopie every night. I was yeah. staying at the uh, you know the Marriott or the Hilton. Yeah, or, I was gonna say cloth tablecloths is what I'm imagining. Yeah, more time in my dress blues <laughs> than in my uh, my uh, woodlands. So yeah. yes, absolutely. And we're we're old marines, right? We still had to we had to shine our boots back then, right? Yeah, right. When now, marines were marines, back when it was when there was. Now there's yeah, chewing nails. Right now there's I think a Velcro in their fatigues, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I did that for a while, for four years, you know, and that was fantastic because it gave me the opportunity to to see the world, um, kind of realize what's out there. We've got a fantastic uh, security clearance, which is a which is a great asset, right? I mean, to, yeah. to be able where to say, did you where did you grow up? So I actually grew up in uh, Northern Virginia. Now it's a pretty big area. It's a town called Herndon. 
It's where Dulles Airport is outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, that was kind of the edge of civilization, right? <laughs> not farther, not much further west was, you know, where the wild things are. And, but it was a small town, maybe 10, 12,000 people back then. Um, it was great. My dad was an electrician. My mom was a, just a clerk for the town. It was one of those places where you didn't have to, like, lock your doors at night. It's changed a lot in 30-some-odd years. Yeah. But um, there, and then I, uh, after the Marines, I went back to uh, university. I uh, studied at Virginia Tech. Uh, good, you know, so if there's any listeners here from the East Coast, go Hokies. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then after that, I, uh, you know, I... Originally, hadn't planned on going into law enforcement, but the Marine Corps and its infinite wisdom chose that career path for me, and I figured out that, you know, this is something I can do. It's a skill set. I, I like it. You know, there's a, at that time, the you know, when I got out in the late, uh, sorry, late 90s, I uh, got out of the Marines in 97, um, there was a big push to hire. Uh, then President Clinton had, the, it was called the COPS Grants. It was, it was the birth of community-oriented policing in the U.S., you know, going from the old you know, us versus them mentality to being more engaged with the community as well as being, you know, um, just again, like being more friendly towards the community. So mm. I was picked up by a local sheriff's office in very rural Virginia uh, called a, it's a place called Bedford County. So again, if there's any East Coast listeners, that would be uh, down in South Central Virginia. I'm very rural. We had, uh, I think the whole county only had about 65,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, more, we had more cows than people. <laughs> it, was a, it was a huge dairy farming community. <laughs> And fantastic place to live. I mean, I loved it. You know, wasn't going to get rich doing it, right? That's not the way we do this. But um, my, my sheriff had retired from the uh, ATF. And, um, you know, he there were some of us who were kind of chomping at the bit to do more. And he pulled myself and some other friends under, our, under his wing, so to speak, and kind of mentored us into going into federal law enforcement. Hmm. Um, out of our academy class. One it, of us, it, was this largely driven? Because here in this kind of rural community, things are kind of quiet, and you guys are like, chomping at the bit like you said you know just to you know especially for yourself you've got some security clearances you've got a little bit more uh seasoning if you will and absolutely i mean and that's absolutely right i mean while i enjoyed you know you know you arrest him on friday night and you saw him at church on sunday (laughs) sometimes it was awkward sometimes it was fun but i had seen the big wide world so to speak and i had had that taste of there's more out there and Mm -hmm. as as enjoyable as it was to you know to make an impact on my own small community, I'd, you know, I had seen the big picture and I was wanting for more. Yeah. And, um, except my sheriff at the time, uh, he had, uh, he mentored a number of us. It was interesting of, of the seven of us that were hired at, together, four of us ended up going into federal law enforcement that he mentored one into the FBI, one to the secret service. Back then I was, uh, it was called the U S Customs service. Now it's Homeland security. And then another ind- individual went into the ATF. And uh, we also keep in touch. It's kind of fun. We've all known each other since, you know, we were baby cops, right? Yeah. But um, but after about five years doing uh, local policing, I did. I applied for a job with the uh, federal government. And back then it was called the U.S. Customs Service. This is pre-9-11 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Customs Service was under the Department of the Treasury. Uh, I've been around since 1789. It was the second, lo- second oldest law enforcement agency in the country after the U.S. Marshals. Um. And while I was in the process, you know, waiting for, you know, you know, it's an 18 month process for yeah, paperwork. What, what's that and, process like? What's, oh my gosh. It's, <laughs> I mean, 
So again, this is uh, pre-internet days or, or, or early internet days, right? So my application was done on a typewriter. You know, I'm sure there's <laughs> some folks here who've never seen one of those things, right? <laughs> and you had to type it, and if you messed up, you had to use whiteout and backspacing and all that stuff. But it was, you know, gosh, I mean, I think just the paperwork side took me probably th- weeks to fill out, and you would mail it to Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., mm-hmm. and then sometime down the road, they would mail something back. But there was you know, <laughs> background investigations, and, and I had already had a security clearance, so that definitely helped. But you know, they they crawl up into your life going back years. I was getting, you know, even with my security clearance in the Marine Corps, you know, they were interviewed. I was young enough that they were talking to high school teachers at the time, you know, and high school girlfriends getting caught. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, that's, that's always worrisome. <laughs> But um, but you know, then then the uh, process, you know, polygraphs and interviews and written tests, um, and I and when I had taken my tests for the you know various police departments, they were very police oriented tests. You know, mm. here's a situation, tell us the facts or whatever. You know, for the federal government, it was it was uh, it was an all day battery of tests, and like okay, the next battery is. Uh, is the math portion. And, you know, we were doing algebra and trigonometry and calculus. It was like, it was almost like taking the GRE or the GMAT or some form of grad school entry exam. It was pretty, it was not what I was expecting. Yeah. After I walked out of the test that day, it was um, actually at the customs house in Baltimore. I was uh, pretty, pretty convinced I'd bombed. <laughs> <laughs> had you had you finished your degree at that point? Yes. I, so I had my bachelor's degree. Uh, as my kids like to tell me, it's in the uh, one of the most useless programs in the country. I have a, Which I have a is? History. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like that. I was wondering, because that, that doesn't really help you on the math portion. Absolutely not. I tell people, you know, in defense of myself and my, my father, uh, rest his soul, was a, was a historian as well, amateur historian. I tell people, history is not about memorizing dates. So remember, it's about understanding cause and effect, so you don't repeat. I would like to. Thi- I would like to think that was the case, though, right? Because when we study history, people get hung up on these events, and they don't really process the application of the event and how what we can take from it and move it to the future, which right. is what's so problematic. Absolutely. Who you know, December seventh, nineteen forty-five. 1066 pick a pick some date in history it's you're right the day is not important because that could have been a week before or a week <laughs> after it's the why right yeah. you know why we got there how we got there absolutely but, but that's actually important because i tell you know i'm di- you know going off off here a little bit but when i when i mentor young uh agents i tell them you know it's you know it's not your degree in crim justice it's not your degree in biology you know the the two biggest, most important skills in our job are critical thinking and critical writing. And believe it or not, a lot of times that's you, you get those skills from, I call it like arts and sciences degrees, right? I, I know a lot of people have, I know a lot of scientists who don't know how to talk to people. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but that's just, that's my selling point for my degree. But anyways. Um, <laughs> whatever, whatever helps you sleep. <laughs> exactly, whatever makes you feel better. <laughs> but after this long 18-month process, right, I mean, 9-11 happened uh, while I was waiting for my academy date. And um, I was, a, again, I was a deputy sheriff in Virginia. <clears throat> my dad at the time had retired as an electrician and was working for FEMA. And um, he actually spent time at Ground Zero in New York, uh, digging through the rubble. And, you know, and having grown up, you know, 30, 30 miles from Washington, D.C., and having friends that worked, you know, family friends that worked at the Pentagon and stuff like that, it was, it was a pretty big deal for us. Um, you know, I remember I'd, I'd been working graveyard shift, come home, um, 
you know, I got, you usually get home about 7.30, you can take the uniform off, eat breakfast, you're in bed by 8, 8.30 or something like that. And, you know, the, the planes start crashing not long after that. And the phone yeah. rang. Um, and it was, you know, it was our, again, we're a small rural department, but the dispatch calling everybody in because nobody knew what was going on, you know, and the sheriff, I remember our sheriff, uh, Mike Brown, great man. He was like, look, you know, stand by to stand by. Cause we can be, we can be to the Pentagon in a couple hours if we need to. Um, but that was, that was a tough time, but <clears throat> I ended up getting picked up by uncle Sam and going down to our academy, which is down in Georgia. It's a six month residential academy. And again, it was a lot different than police academy. Um, it was, you know, because our job is not to deal with the public on a regular basis, like like regular police, <clears throat> excuse me, are dealing with the you know dealing with the very public. forward facing. Absolutely, yeah. you're in your uniform, you're talking to people every day. You know, we're more like detectives, a special agents. You know, again, now, so like I said, I, I had been hired by the U.S. Customs Service, had gone to the academy, and, and right because 9/11 was happening, that's when they created the Department of Homeland Security, and a lot of people, you know, especially during that time, they thought it kind of just sprung into existence from nothing, not realizing that all those 190,000 employees at the time that got rolled into Homeland Security already existed. The Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the Secret Service, the Immigration Service. They just, it was a reorg. Yeah, more of a retasking, right? Absolutely. Move some, some, you know, names on the chalkboard, erase a name, create a new name. It wasn't like we were created overnight, but it, it, it still was some some growing pains because chains of command in DC had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you would not, uh, you would not believe the headaches from rebranding an agency, right? If you go from Phoenix fire department to the metropolitan public safety organization <laughs> of the Phoenix general area, right? It, just, the, just trying to explain to people, no, we're still the fire department. <laughs> we right. just have a different name, right? right. We're, we're still the custom service. We just have a different name, you know, but, um, but yeah, the, the academy is about six months long. It's residential, and having gone at that point already through you know Paris Island, um, a police academy in Virginia, which was very you know I, I call it the hut hut right. It was all about PT and <laughs> tackling people and you know doing all that kind of stuff. This was this was back like to being in college. It was academic. Yeah, um, people fail out of the federal academies, right? Um, you couldn't score below eighty percent on a test, and you could only bomb one test and get one retake, or you would you weren't recycled. You were sent home. Yeah. So it was a lot of people struggle with that because they were thinking it was going to be one of those standard kind of public safety academies where the guy tell, says, you might see this again on the test and stomps <laughs> their foot. And it wasn't that case. It was actually very academically challenging. Um, and then I spent, after graduating, I spent about... So what is sorry. the what is the washout rate? Um, I want to say it's around 15%, which isn't real high because they do a really good job of vetting ahead of time. Yeah, the recruitment on the front end, right? Right. Um, usually um, the washout is for um, injuries that can't be fixed, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody gets hurt. And um, the academy is in, is in coastal rural Georgia. One of the biggest washouts was people getting sick. It was so humid down there. And at the time, the, it was an old Navy base, and the barracks were so old. We were get, you know, Guys were getting like uh, funky lung diseases from the mold oh, and, the, and the moisture, gosh. right? It seems so avoidable, but whatever. Welcome right, to the right. government. It, absolutely. <laughs> right? <We're>, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you, sometimes, you know, people slip through the cracks. Uh, you know, we had a guy who had come from a municipal, a municipal police department that will remain unnamed who had hidden the fact that he was under investigation for um, 
some uh, unlawful use of force. Hmm. And he had, it was about a month in and, uh, in, office inspector general came and they snatched him up and took him away. You know, the random cheating. I mean, it's, it, you know, law enforcement is a, is a slice of society, right? You got, you can't, you can't get rid of all the bad guys. I mean, you'd be surprised who, who can beat a polygraph and stuff. Yeah. But, um, well, the, the funny thing about a polygraph, I think, and this is, you know, incomplete ignorance, but it's just a thought I have is that the sociopath can probably work their way right through there without much of an issue, right? It works on guilt. Um, the first time I ever took a polygraph was for the Virginia State Police, and I bombed it horribly. And that's I chalked that up to the fact that I, you know, having grown up with an old school like Polish Irish Catholic family, I had this like chronic guilt. <laughs> you know, have you ever stolen something? Yes, I'm sure. When I was five, I took a <laughs> stick of gum or a candy bar from Seven Eleven. I mean, I'm sure I did. Right? Okay, so they write that down. Is there anything else? I don't know. <laughs> nothing's nothing's nothing from Gold you know, Fort Knox, but I'm sure I'm missing something. Yeah, so I had to take it a second time, and, it, and they had to tell me to you know check your guilt, you know check <laughs> check your overactive uh, sense of uh, right, I guess you would say. But um, yeah. But after that, yeah, I spent uh, the first six years of my federal career in Los Angeles, which was uh, a pretty pretty major culture shock for me. I'd been there for work before in the Marines, but to live there it was. You know, I went from small town Virginia, reasonably priced items, <laughs> knowing the vast majority of my neighbors. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was, you know, more people in my zip code, I think, in in uh, Orange County than there was in the entire county I lived in and grew up in. So, but yeah, it, moving to that part of California, and you have it's such a uh, so dense, densely populated, and and over a large, vast area, frankly. Right. So it's it's tightly packed, but yet. Pretty large area. You never know where one town begins and the next ends. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, you could drive an hour and still be in the metropolis. Right. right. You know, and it's not an, and it could be an hour at highway speeds. We're not talking right. an hour going 10 blocks. Well. You, you could drive 30 miles and still be in the metropolis. Yeah, but to be clear, the traffic there is so freaking horrible. Like, who's getting up to freeway speed, honestly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, um, it was funny. Uh, we would, you know. We would bust the carpooling quite a bit in our work vehicles, mm. you know, our unmarked vehicles and stuff. And, you know, we didn't drive like unmarked Crown Vicks. You know, you had a Jeep or a, you know, a Blazer or Explorer or whatever. And the poor Highway Patrol guys, they'd see us in the carpooling. You know, they'd start salivating. And it was like a $500 ticket. <laughs> and they pull up next to you and you're like, you know, work in, surveillance, whatever. But, uh, yeah, those poor guys. But, no, it was. It was, it was, it was, it was culture shock. But for work, it was actually fantastic. Uh, I spent, you know, I was in a group that we kind of had like a, th- a multi-part job. We were, um, our primary mission was we were an undercover unit that dealt with Asian organized crime, which was interesting in, in Southern California because they had huge ties back to China, back to Korea, mm. um, Vietnam and places like that, depending what their, you know, their ethnicity was. But here on the state side... Um, they were very specific with the types of folks that they wanted to deal with here as their U- as their U.S. contacts, right? Um, you know, people because it was Asian organized crime, and people look at me. Well, you're just like you don't look Japanese or Chinese or something. No, they it was for them it was very business. They wanted to deal with it, but we with like white business guys who had access to the markets and stuff, and we did we did a lot of cool stuff. We uh we were undercover smugglers. 
Um, you know, I can't go into a lot of detail about things, but you right. know that they would pay us to smuggle things, and depending on what the item was, sometimes you we were allowed to let it go to see where it went. Sometimes you couldn't if it was a dangerous item. Hmm. Well, um, back me up for a second here. What's the uh, what is the kind of broad mission? Of Absolutely. Your- so, Homeland Security Investigations (HSI) is the largest investigative body in the Department of Homeland Security. In general size of investigate law federal law enforcement agencies. Um, the FBI is the largest body of investigators. I think they're hovering around 12,000. We're just behind them at about 10,000. And our primary focus is trans-border crime and nexuses and, and any crime with a nexus to interna- the international border. So there's some interesting things that, um, that, the federal, that federal law enforcement can do that you know, state and locals can't. Um, obviously, we have some extraterritorial authorities um, our authorities you know i tell people see the shining sea right it's all 50 states and territories and stuff um at the border you know individuals have uh a lesser or no expectation of privacy there's so there's things that we can do at the border where we don't need a warrant to do that you would for example need you know at a house or someplace in the interior but our primary missions are narcotics uh human trafficking human smuggling uh child exploitation uh, financial crimes, which is, you know, touches everything, right? Because everything's mostly financial yeah, based. Yeah. That's, that's kind of goes without saying. Uh, uh, sensitive technologies, uh, you know, America is still one of the leading producers, obviously, of, and sensitive technology isn't just weapons, it's microchips, it's computers, stuff like that. Um, one of the cool things that we do, a lot of people don't realize, is art and artifact smuggling, which mm. is really interesting. That's a whole, that's a whole nother topic, right? Um, but there's, is there a, is that a huge market or problem? Believe it or not, it is. Um, not just dom- some domestically. I, I I learned that it's still a thing to go out and dig up bones at Indian burial ground. I didn't realize that apparently, um, but that's that's still a big thing here in the U.S. But we're a huge consumer of and it's not famous stuff. Like no one's going to go steal the Mona Lisa, right? The whole world would be after that. But there are still tons of cultural sites around the world. Um, that really aren't protected. And yeah, like the Indiana Jones grave robbing kind of thing. You know, people go there, dig it up, and they bring it here to the States and they sell them. Try to move it. Yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. it's, and I, you know, somebody, when I first learned about that, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's how we get things into the museums, I thought. I didn't, I didn't understand it. And somebody said, well, how would you feel if somebody went to the Lincoln Memorial, cut old Abe Lincoln's head off, and then took it to France and sold it to somebody. I said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd have a problem with that. <laughs> so that, that kind of, it broadened my horizon. I'd never yeah. really considered it, but that's an interesting one. But after I moved from LA to here, I've spent most of my time in something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is um, uh, online child exploitation and, and trafficking investigations. I've been doing that now, oh, wow, 12 years or more. I mean, it's been a while. Well, yeah, so one of my questions that, is how did you find yourself going down that path? Because I, I would like to think that like that's not something you necessarily say like oh hey that sounds exciting that's what I really want to do. But but I know getting in the law enforcement part of what you're saying is hey my my expectation is to find a way to protect the community right right. So I'm imagine it's connected in that way. But so it's it's interesting. I think because it's such a uh, I mean it's it's a weird dichotomy in america you know sex is everywhere it's on tv to see it right it's in advertisements um but it's also a taboo subject right so if it's if it's okay you know you know somebody on a a beautiful person on a tv show dancing around scantily clad we're okay with that but as soon as it goes down that 
dark path, you know, we, we're still very Victorian, right? We don't talk about that private mm-hmm. thing. But for me, the way I got into it is when I transferred here from LA, I was, um, I spent my first year and a half or so with the good, uh, the good people up there in Glendale, Arizona, working with their gang unit. And, um, you know, it was just, I, I was still, I, I was still a young guy. I was still in my thirties, but I started, I realized I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> and the, but the bad guys are all staying 18, 19 years old. I, you know, I got in, I had gotten into a foot pursuit with some of my buddies who were a little bit younger than me. And I was at the end of it, I was like, man, I was sucking wind. I was, I was a little beat. And I remember I went home and I called my dad. I was like, dad, I don't know. I can't, I don't know how much longer I can keep chasing these young, these young kids. And he's son. You've always been stubborn. It's time to come in out of the rain and work, get behind a desk and work something like that. And I looked around at the different, you know, we call them like white collar crime, you know, financial cases or the sensitive technologies, you know, or corporate crime. And none of those really excited me. I mean, I, I don't like math. <laughs> so I wasn't going to go work financial crime. And somebody said, well, what about the online stuff with the kids? And like most guys, I was like a little... Um, a little leery. Like when we're actually at the academy and we learn about the different types of crime, you know, we're exposed to, mm. you know, these the stuff. Like, you know, the legal term is child pornography, but the uh, uh, the term that the industry, you know, in law enforcement, we use we call it child sexual abuse material, and it's horrific stuff. And we have to actually see it because you have to be able to identify it and understand what it is. And most people at the academy they see it and they're like, man, I can never do this, you know. But by this time, you know, I was a dad and. Um, you know, kids of my own and I kind of realized like wow this is if I have kids I would want somebody out there to be doing this um, and, and these people their children were victimized you know they probably wish there was more people doing this you know and if not me then who right you know here I am send me right yeah so I kind of threw my hat in the ring and you know if it was it was a completely different crime type, you know. You weren't running around with your hair on fire and the lights and sirens type thing. It was, you know, ninety percent of my job is behind a keyboard. Um, you know, we don't even do our own warrants. Usually the the SWAT guys smash the door for us, so I don't even get to do the fun part. Um, but it's it's very time consuming. But it's it's I think it's the most rewarding thing I've done in my career. Um, I mean, we get into public safety to help people. Yeah. And um, in law enforcement, especially, you know, sometimes dealing with certain types of crimes, you become very jaded or callous, maybe, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And um, in this one, it's um, there's especially in law, sorry, in federal law enforcement, so few of our cases or investigations do we have like a physical victim in front of us. Vic, you know, narcotic smuggling. The victims is society, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's this you know abstract you know, construct yeah. here. It's, it's, and even it's a, a child, when you start talking about like white collar crimes, you're like, ah, some business lost a bunch of money. Right. You're like, Oh ah. darn. Apple lost a billion. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's the, the impact of that is really hard to measure really as it personally. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it's child exploitation and trafficking investigations. They are, I mean, there is a, it's it's a crime of violence. It's a crime against persons, right? There isn't there isn't a more impactful crime type on a victim, right? I mean, if my house is burglarized, I can recover for that. If I'm if I'm a, if I am the victim of some type of act of violence, you know that that could be life changing or life ending. Yeah. Um, and a lot of law, I think a lot of guys in law enforcement don't go into it because of 
the you know the real but perceived you know uh, impact on themselves, right? I mean, I've had friends that are homicide detectives, <laughs> Charm City, you know, in Baltimore. That's that's a plus, tough place. They call them the murder police, right? That's a tough place to do that job, and it's you know, there's a it's it's, a, it's amazing that more of them aren't you know alcoholics, perhaps, right? Going home and self medicating, but yeah. you know. For me, it's been, yeah, like I said, about 12 years working this crime type. And, uh, you know, if you had asked me when I was a rookie cop going to my first police academy, if I, if I would be doing this, oh, no, I was going to, I was going to be Starsky and Hutch or, <laughs> you know, or, uh, right, Donnie Brasco or, you know, or somebody, you know, Miami Vice running around. I didn't think I was going to be a, a, a cyber cop or a computer cop, for, yeah. you know, for the, well, to be clear, though, when you got into this industry, that wasn't even a thing. Well, this like, is right. The internet was barely a thing. <laughs> right. We still had AOL, and you still had to, like, I think they were still charging us by the minute, right? <laughs> uh, so let me ask you this, because when when I hear the term human trafficking, um, or, you know, I, I think of, uh, like, kind of like what I grew up with, which was, you know, the white van pulls up, somebody offers a kid candy, and they swoop the kid up and, and steal him away. Right. But, you know, you and I have been talking about this a little bit offline, and it is it is so much more uh, profound than that and more far-reaching and more nefarious, frankly. Um, so just kind of tell me about the kind of the, the, the depth and breadth of it, though. Like, so what really is that? Right. And it is. it is. It's a very complex crime type. Um Absolutely, a stranger danger. You know, seventies and eighties—that was the absolute thing, and and that's not even really considered like trafficking because those were like that was a more traditional kidnapping. The the offender kept the kid for themselves, if that makes sense. You know, in my experience, you know, we we see these movies like Liam Neeson and Taken, right? Special set of skills and all that kind of stuff. And while that probably does happen in some places, maybe here in the U.S., it, it's more common in other countries that aren't developed, right? Where you don't have a strong central government and policing is, you know, for all intents and purposes, non-existent. That's not the reality, right? And my, you know, and I mean, I've, right, I pinned on a badge in, in 1993. It's been a long time. And I've never encountered some, you know, grand criminal conspiracy with yachts and jets flying kids around the world not saying it doesn't exist i've just never seen it what's more likely to happen is it's it happens in our own backyards right um kids are trafficked or even women that are trafficked are you know it's just it's simple grooming activity right a child or a female or even a, a man a young male who's in a place in their life where they are vulnerable They've run away from home because home sucks, right? Um, or they're not happy. Maybe they've got some mild, you know, or some, some minor, or they've got some uh, substance abuse issues that they're struggling with, and that's, that's, a, that's a way in. Um, and, more, and more and more what we're seeing now, of course, with the, in the last five to ten years is with the explosion of the Internet in the last decade, mobile devices, which I can't stand, <laughs> um, cheap data, as you know, especially children, they're trafficked right under the nose of their parents from their own homes. They they they're trafficked globally, and they never even leave their house, right? And and that's the reality of it. Um, you know, I was thinking about this before I you know came over today, and there's and there's different types of trafficking, right? You know, we think of you can you can look at it from different angles. You can look at trafficking. Of adults, you can look at trafficking of children. You can look at the traditional trafficking of what we think of as, like, say, 
you know, street prostitution, uh, you know, or the women that are working in Asian massage parlors, or you can look at trafficking as, again, something that's done over the internet. Uh, in the last 18 months with COVID, it's exploded with kids being trafficked virtually using live streaming software, you know, Bego, Periscope, Zoom, you know, any one of those types of platforms. So it's, there's no one easy fix, right? Um, we get asked often, you know, what what apps should I keep my kids away from or where should I not let my kids go or, you know, my college age daughter is going to certain clubs, you know, socially. Are they known for this stuff? And and that's constantly changing, right? That's the, uh, you know, not the, not being a medical person, but there's the symptoms and then there's the cause, right? That's yeah. the, that's like the symptoms. The cause would be, you know, looking looking at your child's behavior or your loved one's behavior. What's What would make them to be, you know, more susceptible to being trafficked. Yeah. You know, that's something that we try to focus on with the education. But it's, um, I mean, we had, you know, not far from our, where we live, right down the street here, you know, we've, I've done search warrants in our own neighborhood, you know, had, had the team, we, we briefed up in the driveway and walked the block and a half to the bad guy's house, you know, somebody that had walked his dog in our park. So it's it's everywhere. It's not it's not necessarily that creepy guy in the van, right? So so let me ask you this. So the I'm on scene of uh, uh, whatever any kind of call, whatever we're in, in these different houses and all, all around the the various jurisdictions, right? What am I as a first responder? What are some things I'm looking for that might clue me on clue me in that there's something nefarious going on there? You know, I think. Um, you know, there's some there's certain areas in Phoenix where we know, for example, traditional street prostitution's pretty pretty prevalent, right? Yeah. You know, uh, and we don't need to get into those locations. But I, having worked in some of those locations, um, you know, I saw uh, folks from Phoenix Fire there almost every day, <laughs> dealing with ODs or you know uh, individuals that were I don't know. Oh, what you guys call what it's called here in LA? They call them the fifty-one fifty, right? The person who's having a mental health crisis or whatever. And you know, a lot of times those individuals, what's causing that, right? Um, I would look for, you know, as a first responder, if you're dealing with women, especially um, that maybe who've attempted to commit suicide, some type of drug overdose. Um, or some other kind of crisis that's requiring medical medical assistance is if they don't, um, if they're always looking to somebody else for an answer. Like you know, you're you're asking them what their name is, who, what's your name, you know, what's going on here, why are you here, tell me the story. You know, you're trying to get that medical information, and most people, right? I mean. Um, from my understanding, most people that are, you know, they're more than willing to tell you what's going on, right? Unless something nefarious is going on, right? Oh, my toe hurts type thing, right? But if they're looking to somebody else, if there's another person that's kind of hovering around them that they're seeking. Who's answering questions for them, that type of stuff. Right. Now, if they're a kid, that's a different story. I mean, kids are kind of normal with that with their parents, right? Um, but absolutely, you know, if you've talked, if you're talking to a 25 year old woman and she's, she's turning to this other woman. Right, because it's not always going to be the male pimp, right? They have a concept they call the bottom girl, who is like the intermediary between like all the girls who do the work. She's sort of like the second in charge. She's like the the head prostitute, I guess you know, the, in layman's terms. Okay. And she's oftentimes the buffer between the the trafficker, right? She'll take the hit to protect the trafficker. But that female, if she's looking to some other person, an older woman or a guy, looking for validation, can I, you know, trying to get that 
eye to eye contact of can I answer this question right mm. if they if the person's if there's someone's exceptionally very very adamant about getting in the back of the ambo with them and going to the hospital say you know a 25 year old person you know you know if they're ta- if they're walking if they're walking wounded they can go to the they they're good they can get to the hospital you can take them to the hospital they don't need a babysitter right. but if they're if they're communicative and this other individual is adamant that they have to be in the back of that unit yeah, that's a little, you know, more, you know, if it's alcohol induced, you know, or the, you know, you guys know some people, it's sometimes it's just ego, but if it's very, very, um, adamant that they have to go, um, if you notice that they don't have control of their own personal items, like they don't like, you know, they don't have their own phone. Somebody else is holding their phone for them. Somebody else is holding their purse for them constantly, because again, that's how they exhibit, how they exert control. So, well, so let's talk about that a little bit, right? So I think about like, these you know young people who end up in these situations right what is the what is the some of the mechanisms that puts them into these situations where they don't just leave right and that, and that's a fantastic question we get that all the time you know like, well they're not chained to the radiator how come they just don't leave and you know i when i first started investigating these things i had to look back to you know my time as a as a beat cop and we were trained and taught that the same reason women in traditional domestic violence situations don't leave. Her husband gets drunk every Friday night and beats the tar out of her. She calls the cops, and then by Sunday they're holding hands in church, right? Because they're in love, and it's it's manipulation, right? The per, it's codependency, and that that depends. They can be dependent on the person for emotional support. It can be financial support if the person's has run away from home. It's could be their only source of food. Um, especially with young people, kids and even young adults need love. I mean, it's, you know, we're humans. We need that validation and that interpersonal relationships. And if they didn't get it at home in a healthy relationship, they're going to go out in the street and find it. Yeah. You used the word grooming earlier. Absolutely. Which I think there's some of that, that psychological, you know, the, you said the radiator also, and I'm like, oh, they're psychologically chained to the radiator. Yes. By, by virtue of the grooming and, you know, I'm imagining like, uh, uh, you know, a young runaway is like, what do I need to survive on these streets? And somebody comes in and says, hey, listen, I, I got you. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, and it's it's been a trope on TV of like, you know, the the starving actress who goes to L.A. or Vegas to make it and end up as a waitress and they're barely getting by. Next thing you know, they enter this life of criminal behavior. That's actually far more accurate than the Liam Neeson <laughs> route. Right. You know, somebody has left home for some reason. You know, the, you know, whatever that reason is, and it could be escaping horrible stuff at home, right? Maybe sure. there was act, maybe there was actually abuse going on at home, right? Yeah. And now they're out on the street, they're struggling, they which aren't. is a, which sets them up to be even more vulnerable. Absolutely, because they're already used to being, you know, coerced or forced into doing things they didn't want to, and the grooming is complex, right? Um, and the traffickers are really good at at picking up, you know, they on how to do it, you know, they'll. Sometimes it's the carrot, sometimes it's the stick. You know, with this mm-hmm. person, it might be, you know, here, I'll feed you, I'll go get you, get your hair done and get your nails done, buy you some nice clothes. And, you know, a month goes by and they're, they're just taking care of this person. They're, you know, they're, quote, dating, oh, you're, I'm your boyfriend. And then one day they start talking, oh, I've spent a lot of money on you. I need you to start helping me out, right? You know, I need you to go, you know, just go out on this date with this guy. Just just go out on this date. You know, he's going to pay you to go out on a date. And and it's interesting because you actually see this, like, again, there's TV shows and movies where that, that kind of happens in the show. 
And that's that's pretty realistic. And whenever I come across victims, I'm just thinking to myself, gosh, haven't you seen this on television? I mean, right. like, you are literally what you've watched on TV. Yeah, you didn't right? see this coming. But that's the thing, right? They're they're so vulnerable. They're thinking, oh, that, you know, I'm not me. I would, that would never happen to me. He loves me, right? Mm. Um, oftentimes what we see with the uh, trafficked victims from other countries that are brought here, um, you know, the uh, from down south mostly, you know, the... The cartels, you know, they move everything. You know, if they if they can make money smuggling carrots, they're gonna do it, right? But you know, they'll bring women in or drugs or whatever. And a lot of times, that's a little bit. That, there's a lot of force there, right? That's where that's probably the place where you do see sometimes the literal chained <laughs> to places, right? But what's more common is again is the women that are brought in from China or from Southeast Asia to work in these Asian massage parlors. Um, and again, while they're not necessarily chained to the radiator physically, it, they're, can they're, it be like like an indentured servitude type of situation? Absolutely, that's like, exactly what it is. They're coming, oh, okay. they're they're coming over here to to work off. You know, they they have to pay fifty thousand dollars to be brought here from somewhere and you know deep in China, and they don't have that money, so they're brought here and they're you're gonna have to work that off. You're gonna have to do some kind of indentured servitude, and a lot of them expect that they're gonna work in maybe a, you know, work in the kitchen in a Chinese restaurant. Um, maybe work in some kind of factory, you know, there's, 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 a, there's still tons of sweatshops in the LA basin in the San Gabriel Valley area. You know, maybe they'll have to work in one of those types of facilities, landscaping, something like that. But a lot of the women end up in these brothels and again, while they're not physically chained, they're in a country where they don't know the language, mm-hmm. their travel documents is take are taken away from them. Um, they're, to- you know, they, they're coming from a totalitarian country where the government and law enforcement is to be feared and is not there to help you. They're, they're there to victimize you. So culturally, you know, they're not going to turn them, they're not going to run to the government, to police for help because in their country, the government's bad, right? They're, they're the biggest oppressors of all. Right. So yeah. And the only person they're connected to is this person who's, right. who's kind of hold them hostage, if you will. Yeah. And, and that's the only light at the end of the tunnel is that it, pathway. Exactly. And sadly for some of them, as horrible as it is to be a sex worker here in the U.S. and, and you know having sex for money with men, to them in their mind, well, that, that sure beats starving in some godforsaken third world country. At least, mm-hmm. at least they have a roof of their head and air conditioning, <laughs> you know, and a couple meals a day, right? So it's um, for them, it's it's the lesser of two evils a lot of times, and that's and that's how it, that's why it's so insidious because it's it's. You know, it's such a part of our culture that, um, you know, this just kind of happens. You know, people just kind of like, oh, well, I mean, most metropolitan areas just you can drive around, you know, here in the Phoenix metro area. There's there's cities that we know that have you can there's, you know, Asian massage parlors in every street corner. And it's almost it's almost like a trope. It's they're they're memed now. They're jokes. People almost joke about them. Right. Not realizing that those women in there. No, nobody wakes up and says, "Yeah, oh, today I think I'm gonna quit my job, drop out of college, and become a sex worker." That's that's not the reality, right? You know, if you're if if someone's you know patronizing one of those places, you're supporting trafficking. Right. I mean, you really are. I mean, um, you know, a lot. There's a lot of so it begs the question for me, which is that you have people out there advocating to legalize. Um, prostitution and so which which leads me to the question is is there a body of people uh, who are sex workers who are legitimately interested in providing that service to the community for lack of a better way of saying right. it um, 
versus those who are being kind of trafficked, if you will? You know, I, I think there probably is, right? I mean, I, I think it's really small. Um, I, I, but even in the in, in the legal adult pornography industry, you know, in 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 the in the San Fernando Valley of California, right, where the home of it, you know, we're seeing more and more women who have spent careers and you know, I mean, they sign contracts, they're paid, right? They make you know, they make good money. They're you know, they're 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 celebrities. Years later, coming out and saying, you know. If I had only knew what I was, known what I was getting into when I started, I did not realize I was going to be. You know, it's similar con behavior, right? They go to these parties, they get, end up getting hooked on drugs. You know, they get addicted to the lifestyle, right? I mean, if you if you have a a five thousand dollar a week coke habit, <laughs> yeah, you need to do something, right? Yeah. And um, you know, they're degraded and treated poorly. You know, and I I there, I think there was a poor there's there was an interesting study done. Uh, by an international organization about um, sex work in in Amsterdam, right? Because so years ago, prostitution was illegal in Amsterdam, and the Dutch government realized that they were going to. It was just one of these. They were never going to be able to get rid of it. It was just it was ingrained into the culture. So they figured if we bring it into the light, if we license the sex workers, um, if we have them get tested for diseases um it's regulated it would be safer right the uh the petty crime that surrounded it would would go away right they could shine if you shine if you turn the light on you know the, the cockroaches would scatter so they cleaned up the community that neighborhood um it became semi-legitimized i mean there might be embarrassment or having to explain to your wife right but but cult, but it's legal but it's legal <laughs> right um, and that lasted for a while. There was actually a period of time where they found that there were, from my understanding, um, for lack of a better term, legitimate sex work being done by women in the sense that uh, some college students needed, she needed some money for to pay tuition. So she would go down and work a number of dates to earn some money and then pay her tuition. And then go, you know, it was ad hoc as needed. There weren't, there was a lot, there wasn't very much, uh, professional long-term sex work it was mostly yeah. <laughs> oh christmas is coming i need some extra cash i guess um that lasted for about a decade and then this was like in the uh, the 80s and into the 90s and then after the fall of communism and the the crumbling of the of the um the iron curtain eastern european organized crime moved in so now you've got legal legalized prostitution and sex work and the russian mob moved in it just pushed out all the you know, the independent contractors, let's say. And they brought in girls from Belarus and Ukraine and, you know, deep within Russia and stuff like that. And it was that same concept. They weren't chained down. If somebody walked up to them and said, are you free to leave? Oh, sure. But she didn't have her travel docs. You know, um, if something, you know, they'd beat her up if she tried to flee or they would, you know, threaten violence to the family back in the old country and stuff like that. So it swung back to where, all of those, you know, um, all that in, in Amsterdam's being run by the mob, you know, the Russian mob. So it's, while again, while I think there might be some small percentage of people that's that's just what they like to do, I, I think it's so minimal that it's there's no real there's no real legitimate sex work. There's no way to legitimize it because it's just, you know, it's so rife with the ability to be corrupted and, and taken advantage of. And again, like I said, most people aren't going to wake up and say, 
hey, today I'm going to go be a prostitute for money or have to sell my body for money. The people who are doing that are at the end of their rope. This is, the, this is it. It's I can go sell myself or jump off a bridge, right? Mm. And those people are just ripe to be picked off and used as, you know, to be, to be manipulated and, and abused and exploited. Right. So you, t- you touched on the, um, uh, the use of technology and people being exploited, uh, remotely. Uh, so how is that, how's that occurring? I mean, that's, this is something that I think is, is really close to home because you have folks who are, whose kids are on devices sitting in their bedrooms and, um, you know, they may not run away from home and get, you know, trafficked in the more traditional sense. Right. But yet, you know, you mentioned that they're being exploited. So what does that look like? So when we talk about it, when you think about the early days of the Internet, those of us who are old enough to remember that, you know, I remember being in, <laughs> being in the Marines and one of the guys, you know, trying to download like, I don't know, some like old Playboy kind of photo or something like that on the Internet. And it, and it took like an hour and everybody's like, okay, this is ridiculous because you know, technology, the internet was in its infancy, right? So you fast forward from the nineties to, you know, we're talking almost 30 years later and, um, you know, we have instantaneous communication, handheld communication mm-hmm. with, with, you know, with our, with our mobile devices, right? I mean, it's, it's Star Trek stuff. It really is. You know, when, when we were kids and watching, watching Star Wars, like, well, one day we'll have the ability to talk to somebody without having to pay long distance. Right. And, and that's how it, that's, that's the way it's working nowadays. Um, Kids, I mean, I saw an interesting thing. I think they said, it was an article I saw today, actually, something like, they say 97% of adults in America have an internet footprint, which makes me wonder what the other 3% are doing. Yeah, <laughs> right. They're out there hustling and working. They ain't got right? time for all that. And, and, the, and the percentage <laughs> of kids, they, don't even, they can't even wrap their, wrap their head around because if you ask the parents and you ask the kids, you get two different stories, right? So the way it's happening on the internet is 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 simple, really, you know. Um, when I when I give when I give talks or try to educate parents and youth about it, I ask people who has an interstellar communication device or who owns a movie a movie studio, a movie production studio. People look at me like I'm crazy. I said, Well if you have a mobile phone you do, right? I mean, most people nowadays with a halfway decent mobile phone, you can log in to the the International Space Station's website and at certain times of the month you can talk to astronauts in space, real time, live. You know, there's a, whatever the delay is, you know, nine seconds or something because of the distance, but you can literally talk to people in space. So if you can talk to people in space, you can talk to people anywhere on the planet, yeah. right? And you have a camera on that device. So you're not just doing it voice anymore. You're doing it face to face in real time. And that, that's the mechanism right there. You know, we as parents so often, um, you know, we get busy in our lives and we find, a, we find something to occupy our child's time. Again, when we were children, it was go watch TV, <laughs> go yeah. go watch Wonderful World of Disney, the A Team, something like that. Or G- go out in the backyard and play with a stick. Yeah, go dig a hole. <laughs> right, go yeah, go yeah, right, go jump your bike off the off the curb. Right, right. You can only you can only get in so much trouble. And yeah. even as children became, even as children become sexually curious as part of their normal development, mm-hmm. right? Again, thirty years ago, you could only get in so much trouble. You could either. A, go find, if your dad had nudie magazines in the garage, you could go find those and you could only go as far as the cover, right? Or you could, you know, Porky's style, you know, ooh, you know, try to get a peek at the girls in the locker room. And we laugh about that, but, you know, that's, but that's, that was it, right? It wasn't memorialized. 
There was your ability to go down this rabbit hole. Well, and access was very restricted. Like, you, know, you couldn't just walk into a store and, and buy these magazines. Right. I mean, you could, but you had to be a certain age. There was checks and balances. They were, you know, hidden away, whatever. Right. And and the sh- there was there was a level of uh, secrecy and shame, if you will, Correct. that was you know built in by society, and that that access has been completely uh, opened. Right. I mean, while you know, again, in the early days, of the internet was a little bit easier. Like now, if you type in certain keywords into Google for sam- for say, you know, for example, you're not going to find certain things. Like, I mean, you can absolutely find you know adult pornography through Google search through your search engines, but that's the problem, right? I mean, our children are granted access to sexual contact at a significantly younger age. Okay, yeah. so you take that normal developmental curiosity. You know, I mean kids playing doctor goes back centuries probably right um but now you throw at them you know instead of going out behind the the the, the garage and say let me see yours and i'll show you mine and go "Ooh, okay we're different now that same six seven eight year old relatively quickly can find themselves you know enmeshed into looking you know viewing hardcore adult pornography and that desensitizes them right yeah. they to believe that's normal behavior mm-hmm. um especially for someone their age and that and that's and that's one of the grooming techniques that offenders use and you talk about how this happens um i mean kids are on the internet all the time right i mean how many of us have children who can operate the phone, the iPad, whatever device, better than the adult, right? I mean, like, when we were kids, we could program the VCR better than mom and dad. Now they can operate, you know, the mobile device, the technological tools better. 100%. And that's what happens. They're on there, they're on there all the time. I mean, if, if there's a place on the internet where there's kids, there's offenders. If your kid plays Fortnite, there's pedophiles on Fortnite. If you're back in the day, you know, we used to have problems with going back 10 years, Club Penguin, which was an old Disney thing back in the day pedophiles on that you know if they're playing games and if, if they're on if they're using twitch or discord if they're on social media you know if they're using snap or insta or any one of those types of things if there's kids on it there's pedophiles on it because that's where the creepers go right the pedophiles are going to go where they where the children are and why that's important to, to parents and to your listeners is, is you have to understand that um when you give your child a device and you say here you go and they take it into the bedroom, they take it into the bathroom, or, you know, um, they're being secretive with it. You want to know why. I mean, it's normal for kids to be secretive about their relationship with like, maybe another kid their age. You know, they're embarrassed to tell us they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or they think somebody's cute. That's that's normal adolescent behavior. But I would argue, you know, you're, there's, there's no reason for your child to take their mobile the, your mobile phone has a camera on it and a data plan. They don't need to take it into the bathroom. If they want to listen to the music, buy them a radio. <laughs> get them a get them a smart speaker because that's how it happens. It happens quick. You know, they'll the the grooming can you know the grooming might take a little while. You know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, depending on how good the, the 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 offender is. But the actual exploitive event can be just moments. You know, they're in the bathroom. They're already in there taking a shower. For whatever carrot or stick technique that that offender uses, well, he says, well, you're already in the shower. Just send me a picture of your bum or send me a picture of your breasts or send me a picture of your private parts, right? And now the hook is set. Now they've got that kid because like you talked about earlier, shame, after they do it, that kid's going to feel shame and that's normal, right? But now they're now they're ripe for, that, for the picking 
because the offender has that that thing to hold over your head. Well, I've got a picture of your of your private parts or your or your breast or your bum. I'm gonna send that to your mom or your dad or your school or whoever. And they and from there it just goes from this you know thing that was kind of innocent. And, oh gosh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Oh well, to like just to horrible horrible stuff. And you know, oftentimes parents ask us, well, again. Well, are there any apps that I should worry about, or and and or are there are there platforms, or there games I shouldn't let them play? And we tell them all the time, you you spend all your time, every time an app gets shut down, or or we find out about an app, ten more pop up in its place, right? Mm-hmm. So focus on your child's behavior. You know, mm-hmm. do they? Do you see? A, yeah, like to be clear, like what's the one thing you can control? Which right. I mean, even your kid's behavior, you're hard to control, but. But you certainly can't control the apps that are going to be available to them, right? No, I mean, that's... and uh, Right, I mean, if all else fails, I mean, you take your kid's phone away, you don't think they're going to go to their friend's house and just use their device, right? Yeah. But if, you're, if you see a sudden change in your child's demeanor, right? I mean, yes, puberty's crazy and stuff, but you'll, a lot of it's, you know, you'll see them, you know, they'll, they'll be... Uh, self-harm is a big one, right? Um, depression, uh, being... like way more secretive than normal about their stuff. Um, and uh, it, it, we tell parents, don't don't blame your child if you find out that your kid's doing this, right? I mean, that's, they're, they're not developed emotionally and, and mentally yet, right? That's that's why the offenders go after them. They're kids. They don't understand the long-term ramifications. I mean, most kids can't think past Friday, <laughs> right? If yeah. you're lucky. They're not understanding how this is going to affect their life. Yeah. Well, like most of our, the human brain isn't fully developed, fully formed until you're what, 20, in your 20s. 20s, right. Yeah. yeah, mid, early 20s. So there's a lot of vulnerability there. And uh, when you have master manipulators, you know, who can coerce, you know, and uh, the idea that it's the grooming piece is interesting because it's just very slow and subtle uh things that bring them closer into the more uh sin- the more significant exposure yes but it starts off very innocent and very slowly it starts off as a friendship or whatever right I mean, if you you know if you were to watch like uh there was that tv show that was on a couple years ago the americans about the soviets who had infiltrated the u.s and they were spies and stuff and it's very similar to like how the intelligence communities would say you know recruit somebody to mm. to turn on their own government right you, you don't just walk up and say hi would you like to spy for me you know it's it's right. you know death by a thousand cuts. yeah hi i'm with the kgb you want to join right <laughs> right no. exactly it's this just slow and you know and slow taking your time being you know filling that void that they have mom and dad don't listen to me oh you can talk to me i'll listen well let me uh, let me ask you this too or, or let me I, I think what i would say is that most of those kids don't know the person they're talking to is an adult, right? right. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, even if they th- even if they know they're an adult, you know, they don't know that the guy's you know actually you know stinky old white guy, fat, forty five years old, living in his mom's basement. They think he's like maybe nineteen, college freshman, you know, or well, whatever image uh, they want to push out, right? Right. They, they they sell themselves as whatever Absolutely. image, right? I mean, come on, you can be anybody you want. You know, none of the Tinder profiles are realistic, right? So if they're not realistic, you think the kids talking to your kids are realistic, yeah. right? That's that's not the case. They can be anybody they want. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, when we were kids, if you weren't getting love from, if you weren't getting what you needed at home, you went out and you, you joined the Marines or you ran with a street gang or, or something. But you, um, you found that validation maybe 
real-time face-to-face, if the person turned out to be not what you were expecting, you could walk away. Yeah. Doing it over the internet, you have no idea if that person really is what they say they are. And by time they set, by time you realize what's going on, the hook is so so deep. They've got so much on you, you know. Um, you know, they know where you live. They they know where you go to school because you've told them. You, they 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 know who your friends are because you've told them. Mm-hmm. They know everything about you, and you know, a 13 year old girl is going to, doesn't understand that. She just, okay, he's got a picture of my bum, but if I just say no, that's, that's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. You know, they're embarrassed to go to their parents. Yeah. Um, you know, I tell parents to make sure that, you know, if you're going to give your child devices, you know, set some strong, you know, set some firm, but fair rules, have some realistic expectations. You have to understand that your kid is going to try to be secretive with the device. That's, Kids have been hiding stuff from parents <laughs> since there was kids and parents, right? Yeah. Um, but try to have that open line of communication. In my in my job and what I've seen is um, the more engaged in a healthy, not domineering helicopter parent, but the more healthy that relationship is between parent or adult, you know, caregiver and the child, the less likely they are to be um, victimized. The confident kid who is secure in who they are, whether you know in their you know in you know in their own sexuality and their own body image, um, feels good about who their friends are, feels like they have a good relationship with their their mom and dad or their family, they tend to be less likely to be victimized. Now they, I'm not saying they're not sexually active. That's a whole other thing, right? But they're less likely to be victimized. The kid who is maybe struggling, you know, is has. Um, when I say struggling, they don't know, you know, they're struggling with their sexuality or coming out perhaps something, you know, and they're afraid to talk to mom or dad. Those kids are ripe for, you know, for the picking, let's say, or maybe one, you know, we talk about, you know, they just talk about the wallflower, the shy kid who would just sit over there in the corner and didn't have a lot of friends, um, you know, uh, didn't know how to, just was uncomfortable with other kids, were so shy that they couldn't talk to kids in real, you know, real time face to face. They'll go find friendship on the internet, right? Mm. Because they can be whoever they want. They can be confident. So having that open communication, I mean, um, you know, I lament the day now where you, you see these images of families where, Oh, we're going to have family. You know, we're good. We have family, family movie night every Friday night. We all watch a movie together. Eat pizza. Awesome. And, but you all got your phones in your hand. No one's watching the movie right. and everybody's looking at the meme or social media or playing a game or whatever, you know, just take a little bit of time and park the phone, you know, put it away for dinner, have a family game night or something. So you just engage with your kids because if your kids, you know, the kids are going to make mistakes. Kids are going to stumble in and do stupid things, but they need to feel comfortable to be able to come to mom and dad and, and talk about it before they just go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Hey mom or dad, I was talking to this person on the internet I might have sent a picture of my whatever. Okay, well, let's not freak out. Let's get the police involved. You know, let's figure out this out. You know, but thank you for coming to me. So, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, without giving away trade secrets, how do you roll these guys up? <laughs> and I say guys, right? Like it could be women too. I, I mean, how are we rolling up these dirtbags? Um, you know, again, without giving out a lot of trade secrets, there's, I mean. It's tough, right? I mean, there's so many places on the internet. The way if somebody, you know, if someone's on the dark web, it's a different way of working than if somebody's using social media. Um, I mean, there's still people using. Well, how much of this is on the dark web, or how much of it's really forward facing in, in you know, TikTok and 
whatnot. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, TikTok's the devil. No, <laughs> um, it's it's everywhere. Anywhere there's kids. I mean, I have worked cases on the dark web. I've worked cases on Facebook. I've worked email cases. Uh, peer-to-peer, which is like the old um, LimeWire, BitTorrent type stuff, like back when we were, you know, Napster, right? <laughs> well, there's Napster for porn, there's Napster for yeah. child abuse material, right? Um, so it's everywhere, and that's the thing, is the offenders, um, you know, a lot of folks think, oh, it's you know, it's just here, or just there, you know, or if, if I've got a bad guy who's just on kick, you won't be on dark web. No, these guys, they're, it's, if you look at it, it's like a drug, um, you're going to go wherever you get your drug. Right. Yeah. This is their addiction. But I'm sure they put as many lines in the water as they Absolutely. can. Absolutely. Right? right. Whether they're getting ex- new stuff or existing stuff. Right. And existing stuff meaning th- the same image. You know, once an image is out there, that's something too your your viewers need to know, especially with their own kids. Once an image is out there, you just have to. It's out there. It's never going away. Right. You can't. The, the bullets downrange. You can't call it back. Um, but, um, you know. Right now, like me personally, in my in my day to day workflow, because I what I do is I spend most of my time as an online undercover. So I go out and proactively try to find offenders, and I can't get into a whole lot of details, right? Yeah. But but that's I choose to I try to take the fight to them type thing, and um, you know about half the stuff that I'm seeing on a daily basis, stuff meaning child abuse material, child sexual abuse material is self-produced and by self-produced what i mean is it's that child who's been groomed and they're in their bathroom or in their shower or under the covers at night there's no adult the, the abuser is 5000 miles away right on a different continent and they've been coerced into making this content using generally a live streaming platform and then that offender records it and then they share it with all their with all their offender friends, right? And that's right. that's the reality, you know. Um, but the techniques, I mean, yeah, I mean, if somebody there's, you can see some great stuff out there. Some of the articles, um, that I would tell people if if individuals listening in want to do research, I always tell them if you read the British the articles coming out of the UK newspapers about this type of stuff, they <laughs> they tend to be uh, uh, maybe a little bit more sensationalistic, but they actually go into the the technique here in the US where we we keep it really close. Well, well, let me ask you this then. So if I'm a parent and I have a concern, my kid comes to me and says, hey, I I did this thing or whatever and, you know, cops to something and you're like, man, this looks incredibly uh, inappropriate and I I see where this is going. How can can that parent clue you guys in and, and get law enforcement involved? I feel like calling your local, you know, law enforcement office isn't really necessarily going to get you where you need to be. Well, it, it depends. I mean, the first thing I always tell parents is, do not engage the the bad guy. Like, don't get on. I'm your, I'm her dad. And I'm gonna kick your butt. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> um, don't delete it. Um, immediately call law enforcement. And the reason is this: is if if they're talking to your kid. Yeah. They're talking to 50 other kids. Sure. And your kid might be that one who's been brave enough to come forward. Yeah. So you're not just saving your child, you're saving children that you'll never meet. And that that's number one. Don't just ignore it. Don't, don't, don't. Okay. Um, call local law enforcement. And yeah, realistically, having been doing this job for years, you, the first person that's going to show up is your local precinct or beat guy. <laughs> well, so, so, so this is a dumb question, I guess, but 911? 
Absolutely. I mean, okay. I mean that's easy, right? I mean yep. that's the thing. I mean the the you know, come on, dispatch is gonna they're really good at going. Okay, this is you know it's not happening real time. That's good trained dispatchers, <laughs> okay. right? They know, <laughs> you know, no one, no one. Come on, I mean people call nine one one. Well, so that's the thing. People are very resistant and reluctant to call nine one one because like, well, this isn't a guy, you know, uh, you know, in my house right. with a gun. I mean, if you ha- if if as a parent, if you're willing to take the time to look up the non-emergency number for your PD, absolutely, you know, whatever it is. I mean, because they they'll appreciate it, right? You're not tying up that nine one one line. But I mean, I don't. <sighs> but let's just make. I mean, but access being what it is, you can call nine one one. Dispatch is going to route you to where you need to be. And, absolutely. And, okay. And realistically, what's going to probably happen, depending on your jurisdiction, you you know. Depending on how they handle things, you're going to get a you know an officer's going to take a phone complaint to pass on to like sex crimes or the inter- or their their cyber guys. An officer might come out to take the information. Um, again, it's depending on what the local protocols are. But the biggest thing is that right at that time, the evidence is the device, right? Do not that is it. That is that's gold because that's where the investigation is going to start. Because they're going to say, okay, little Susie is on kick and she's talking to Joe Blow. And that's where the investigation starts. If you delete that, yeah. if you get rid of it, well, okay. Hey, policeman, somewhere in the world, there's a pedophile who talked to my daughter. Hey, fire guy, somewhere in the world, there's a fire. No kidding. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So you got, you got to give me a starting point, yeah. right? And that's a big thing because we do see that all the time as parents or they don't, they don't want to deal with it. I mean, you get some parents who just don't want to deal with it. And parenting skills aside i would tell people yeah please be the person who calls the law enforcement right. and if it's a small agency there's every state in the union has it's called an internet crimes against children task force icac um those are funded by the federal government they'll be partners with the fbi hsi um maybe in your maybe in your jurisdiction maybe it might be the secret service and then it'll be um, most of your major law enforcement agencies in that area will have a representative. It might be a full-time rep, might be a part-time rep, but it's a pooling of the source resources, right? But there will be there'll be people on that task force who do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you're in small town like where I grew up, you know, Bedford, Virginia, and if you don't have a local cop, they'll they'll reach out to the guy two counties over who's the expert, right? Uh, and it, it'll land somewhere because. You know, this is one of the, again, one of those crimes where it's victim centric. The first thing is to make sure that child is safe, that the, the abuse stops. And then from there, it's to identify the offender because, again, they're going to have other victims. So it's it's kind of like that spider web. And while there isn't some giant, grand, global criminal conspiracy of pedophiles, all they do actually work together in a sense that, um, you know, they'll trade techniques. You know, there's... Um, some of them have actually written um, internet books, for lack of a better term. I mean, there's there's guides out there on how to groom kids. Um, they will trade. Seriously? Oh, absolutely. Is that stuff that's marketed in in the sense of like, here's how to protect your kid, and then oh, they no, kind of no. give away the information, or is it straight up, hey, this is how we do this? Yes, no, it's it's that's what it is. It's a straight up, you know, how, really how to be a how to be a pedo one hundred and one. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's it that there's there's a pretty famous document, and I, again I'm not going to reveal it because I just don't want to, to reveal it. But it's it's been out there for for many years. But even in real time, like places where I'm at on the internet is part of my job. I see offenders talking about, hey, there's this new. Hey, have you guys heard about this new gaming platform? I was on it, and there's kids on it, and you know what? There doesn't seem to be any kind of content moderation. Oh, cool! It's all, and they will. They they go out. They share a technique. Like, are you talking like like on a chat room type thing where they 
they share this information? Yeah. Like like Reddit. Well, not so much Reddit, right? I mean, because if it's um, and that's that's you know that's one thing I can't. I'm using share. that as an example, right? But, but like that but, type of platform. Yeah, yeah, because um, you know, again, if if somebody actually, I challenge your listeners next time they go into like go into like their their um the app store of their choice and start looking through, just type in live stream, for example, right? Okay. As, as a search term and look at all the different live streaming platforms. You'll see the big mm-hmm. ones, you know, uh, Bego, Periscope or whatever, but then you'll start seeing all these little weird ones. And we actually look where they're, look where they're made. <laughs> Countries like that, you know, we really don't have any, not that the country itself is a bad country, but their, their law enforcement, like, you know, is just for all intents and purposes, non-existent, right? I mean, like the cops in, Kenya aren't going to be worried about this kind of stuff, right? You know, or the cops in Mexico, for example, they got bigger, they, they have different problems. And that's where a lot of these apps are based out of. So me as U.S. law enforcement, I can't compel a company in another sovereign nation to cooperate. Mm. You know, we don't, the, the, Interpol doesn't have agents who helicopter in and, and suck the data out. That's not the reality of it, right? So that's what happens. These these offenders absolutely and, and that's one of the thing that's one of my jobs is to to, to to be embedded with these guys and to see how that happens. Because so often we are playing catch up in law enforcement by the time we find out about a place where the offenders are, we're behind the times. Mm-hmm. Right? We're you know the goal is to get there at ground at the at the beginning and get embedded. Right, so then um, we can watch it grow and and start picking the people off. But um, so, absolutely, they trade trade secrets. Man, I, I'm so sick to my stomach right now. So, as a as a public servant and as a parent, where can I go to get good information that can help me uh, better understand? the way grooming is done so I can recognize it and so I can recognize like signs and symptoms, if you will, of, of these activities taking place, whether I'm on a call or whether I'm in my household, Absolutely. where do, where do I go to get more information? Cause you've given me so much to process right now, but, but I need more. <laughs> yes. So the, a fantastic place to start, especially here, if, if you're in the U S or in an English speaking country, if you have foreign listeners or non U.S. listeners is the national center for missing and exploited children. Nick Mac. Um, that's the organization that was started by Adam Walsh back in the day when his son was kidnapped and subsequently murdered the missing kids, the milk box kids, uh, milk carton kids. They have, um, it's, so it's N I think that's www.ncmec.org. Um, they're a nonprofit. They're um, they're the major partner for law enforcement globally, and they have tons of educational um, videos. They have uh, tools that you can use to talk to your own kids. If you're a, a provider in a school, they have lessons you can download. You know, I, I call it the good touch, bad touch, but that kind of stuff, right? Like you know what's appropriate and what's not. So that's a fantastic one. Um, if you have, there's other ones too. Um, there's actually some organizations out there that provide training to um, first responders that aren't in law enforcement. There's an organization, um, the National Criminal Justice Training Center. So I think that's ncjtc.org. Um, they do a lot of webinars and online free training. Free, that's the, that's the big thing, right? That helps. It's uh, it's all funded through grants from the Department of Justice. And they do a lot of um, you know, hour webinars that you can watch at your leisure geared towards first responders, whether you're a tribal cop or tribal fire you know, or rural departments and stuff like that. Because it, they, their view is it's a... Um, 
let's say, I hate the term, it takes a village, but they call it the multidisciplinary approach in the sense that, you know, that child victim might not have any contact with law enforcement. Their regular contact might be with, you know, fire EMS because of maybe self-harm issues or maybe some type of social worker, right? And they have fantastic trainings and classes um, about that. So those are two really good places to start. You can, they both have webinars. And from there, depending how far down the rabbit hole you want to go if you want to learn about some of the activities that are being done by law enforcement or how you can help by volunteering or you know providing education in your in your area there's you know you can go down that path even further um and that's a big thing i'm a um in in this crime type um when i first started it years ago you know the focus was get the bad guy and of course that's important then it's evolved into, well, we're victim-centric. The victim is most important. And that makes sense too, right? You got, if all those, if the bad guy gets away, I'll catch you later. I got this victim. And we, and we talked, we used the term saved. We saved a victim, right? That's what we do is public safety. You save somebody. Yeah. Well, well, in the fire world, hey, we want we put a fire out. Great. Well, if you if you want to put a fire out, that means, that means somebody's house caught on fire. I, it's probably better to like maybe prevent the house fire in the first place right in our job it's i'd rather prevent that child from being victimized so i'd rather get a prevent than a save and that's where the education comes in whether it's educating our first responders who might see this in their job professionally or in their own life right first responders we're gone a lot right we're gone at weird hours we're gone on holidays we miss soccer practices and church and birthdays that doesn't just take a toll on our wife or husband or his partner. It takes a toll on our kids. And our kids, first responder kids, are really susceptible to this type of thing because we're gone and, you know, they find, you know, they find that, they might find that attention in a bad place. Um, but, you know, education is the key, whether it's in your schools or in your, your, your religious communities or wherever it is because, um, you know, it's something we have to talk about. It's a tough subject. But you've got to talk with your parents and your kids um, and your loved ones because I, I'm telling you, if if this happens to your life, I mean it's you know it's gonna be the it's gonna be the you know the biggest if it happens to your 12 year old child, that's the biggest event that's gonna happen in their life yeah. up to that time. You yeah. know? So. Well, brother, thank you so much for yeah. for sitting down and and setting me on this path, uh, this educational path. Um, and helping us understand a little bit more about how this impacts us in our communities and in our families. And, um, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, this is such a, uh, horrible crime, any, any crime against children and, and, um, and young adults and, and vulnerable populations is just disgusting. Um, and in this particular case, it's just even more so. And and really, so I appreciate you digging in and doing the work that you're doing, man. Because you know, like you said, someone's got to do it. And if not, if not you, then who? Absolutely. Right. So thank you for putting yourself out there and doing that work, man. Well, I appreciate the time, and uh, I don't know how it works, but if any of your uh, listeners have you know want any more information, you know, they can, if they have the ability to contact you or whatever, they can reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, Austin Barrier. Um, but if they have questions, they can reach out to me and I can help point them in directions. Well, thank you for offering that. And Absolutely. I'll, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn in the, in the show notes so people can track it down easy. Fantastic. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Rain. Hey, that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
Thanks for tuning in. Uh, If you are enjoying this podcast, get over to whatever platform you listen to, subscribe, and this podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Additionally, uh, get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast, or email me, send me some feedback. Either way, uh, that helps the podcast, helps me get some feedback on how we can move forward, what direction we might go, etc. Now, take the lessons you learned here, go on out, figure out what you're missing in your life, lean in, and get some.